and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 10. Uh, there's 11 verses here, and we'll, we'll cover those. And uh, if you haven't been with us for the book of Revelation, what we're kind of working through right now is uh, the, the trumpet judgments. And so there's been a trumpet that was given to seven different angels. Six of those angels have blown their trumpets. And judgment from God on sin on the earth has then happened through that. And uh, there was a loss of uh, a loss of the things that people would put their security in. There was demonic oppression, and then there's war between nations. And so all these things are happening as um, as God is judging sin on the earth. And what, what's going to happen right now for the chapters that we're in, and in particular this chapter, is is there's sort of a pause to contemplate, like what has just taken place. Uh, these visions that the Apostle John is given uh, to, to understand things that are future, that are taking place later on. Uh, he, he's seeing these things. They're all things that have been revealed in the Old Testament to one degree or another, but they're getting more clarification. And uh, the, there's a, a mighty angel here, and he's really going to cause John to just kind of slow down. Um, you've taken in a lot. Slow down and contemplate uh, what you've seen. And so uh, let, let me pray with you, and then we'll, we'll look at this passage together. Father, this morning, those are great words for us to pause and contemplate. Uh, There's so much going on in the world around us right now. Some of these things sound similar to what we see in the book of Revelation on a smaller scale. And um, sometimes we find ourselves wondering what's happening around us. Uh, What's going to happen next? Um, Where's my security? Where's my hope? Um, And the constant reminder from the scriptures is that you are our security and you are our hope. If our eyes are fixed on the events of this world, uh, we're going to experience distress. Um, But if our eyes are fixed on you, we're going to experience peace in the middle of that. And uh, so, God, we thank you for that, that we can be at peace, that we can be secure in you. Uh, I pray that we would slow down and contemplate what it is you want to show us in life. And what are the things that you want us to know? Uh, Maybe this morning we need to stop and contemplate our, our eternal destiny. If, if my life ended today, would I spend eternity with you? Or have I been in opposition to you? Um, and would I be choosing a, an, an eternity of continued opposition to you? Uh, where, what's, what's, what will happen at the end of my life? Am I safe and secure through what your son Jesus has done for me, or am I, am I fighting you? Uh, and then maybe, God, as a Christian, we just need to contemplate our walk with you. Do we think we have you figured out? Uh, do we come to you only for what we can get from you? Uh, can we be content with just you? Um, and then maybe as Christians we need to change the way that we approach the scriptures. Instead of a, a book to figure out what's in it, we can, we can go to it and just slowly take it in and ruminate on the truth that you've given to us. I can't figure you out, God. You're too grand for my mind. Uh, But I am thankful for what you've revealed to be true about you. And so we we look forward to what you'll teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So these judgments that have been taking place, they're, they're serious. And one of the things that we get from the, all of Scripture, but in particular the book of Revelation, is that God's handling of sin, um, it's not something small, it's not something light. Sin is serious. Um, and so there's a brokenness within each and every one of us that needs to be dealt with. Uh, there's a rebellion against God that needs to be ended. And then there's individual acts that we've done against God and against each other that leave us in a, in a position of debt towards God and towards each other. And when Christ comes, he, he comes and he deals with all of those. And so if we're outside of Jesus, we're in a position where the scriptures would describe us as wicked, as broken or bent moving against God instead of for him. And so in Ezekiel chapter 18, it's on your handout, it says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Um, God does not delight in judgment. It's actually something that, that is, it turns his stomach. He says, this is the de- declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives? And so one of the things that we understand about God is he's much like a good parent. He's much like a father that cares for his children. He loves his children. And if you have children, you know that when you, when you, punish, when you have to come in and give discipline or punishment, it's not something that you go, oh, man, this is what I woke up to do today. I just love it when my kid messes up because I wanted to whoop him. Like, that's not, what, that's not fun as a parent. Most of the time you enter those situations with a degree of hesitance. It's like, man, I got to do this. Because um, if I don't, if I don't discipline, if I don't correct, if I don't set boundaries, that would actually be really unloving. That would actually be uh, sinful because I wouldn't be doing the stewardship of parenting this child that God has given to me. But, so I'm going to do it, but I don't really delight in this. Um, I'm not excited about disciplining my children. Um, and in a similar way, that's how God deals with us. It's not like he's looking for us to mess up and going, boy, I can't wait for Kirk to mess up today because when he does, I'm going to really scold him. That's not, that's not God's heart. That's not his mind. But he does want to come alongside us and correct. And the point of the correction is that we would turn from our ways to his and live. And that's where he finds delight. And so that's one of the things that God is going to reiterate with, his, or, excuse me, with John here in this passage. And so if you'll look at uh, chapter 10, verse 1 with me, I'm reading from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Um, We see this mighty angel. He says, then, and the then would be after he saw the events of the sixth trumpet, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun's, his legs were like pillars of fire, and he held a little scroll opened in his hand. So he had a scroll that was already opened and given to him. He put his right foot on the sea and his left on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders raised their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. And so as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've seen the seven seals open and God's judgment on sin, the seven trumpets. We've been going through those and God's judgment on sin. We'll get to the seven bowls. What's interesting is there's actually another one here, the seven thunders, and God actually says that we don't get that information yet. He tells John not to write it down, that there's another series of actions that God is going to take during this time, and he says, don't write it down. Now, that might sound frustrating. 
right? Like, I want to know. Like, what is this about? And many commentators have taken some stabs at it and, and guessed about it. But the fact of the matter is God has sealed it up and we don't know. And this is actually something that's interesting about God. He understands who we are. He understands what He need, what we need. And the, the scriptures are given to us in accordance with our need. Uh, it might actually be too much for us if he had these things written down for us. We might not have to exercise faith the way that we do if we had more information. And so God is hes huge, right? If your God is small enough for you to figure out, he's not much of a God. The God of the scriptures is beyond our comprehension. He gives us things that we can understand and comprehend about him, but his fullness is too much. It's more than could be written in a book. And so there's some things that we don't get to know. Now, this mighty angel, uh, the commentators go different places with who it is. Some look at it as the archangel Michael or Gabriel. Some look at this and they go, boy, that sounds a lot like Jesus. And if you look at the Old Testament, uh, there were pre-incarnate manifestations of Jesus where he was called the angel of the Lord. They would call it a theophany or a Christophany where Jesus in his deity before he joined it with humanity. There's another one. If, if you can figure that one out, let me know. Um, but b- before he he joined his deity with humanity, he would show up as an angel. And so some people think that that's maybe what's going on here. But Jesus' deity has been joined with with humanity, and he is to never die again. And so it doesn't really make sense that this would be Jesus described as this angel. Uh, The text gives us language that it sounds a lot like how Jesus was described earlier in Revelation, and that's why many people go there with this. But it also sounds a lot like the angels that are around God's chariot in the book of Ezekiel, um, his chariot that shows up in chapter 2 of Ezekiel. And so uh, the word that actually lets us know what's going on within this passage is the word another. Okay, So in the Greek, they had two different words for another, alos being one of them, and that was like, I I want another of a different kind. And so I might be writing with a paint a pen with blue ink and I go give me another of a different kind I want one with black ink we have to fill in the blank with that right but I want another one but I want it to be a little bit different all right the other word that they would use is hetero and that meant another of the same kind so my blue pen isn't working give me another of the same kind this word here is allos and so it's an angel of the same kind that's already been mentioned in chapter 6 and so we understand this to be one of these angels that is bringing messages to John and to the earth the angel's job is to guide John's writing and to cause him to slow down okay John needs to take a breath and contemplate everything that God will do during the great tribulation and we're encouraged to do the same We also, again, we we encounter that difficult truth that there are some things that God has forbidden to be recorded. Um, Why would God withhold certain things from us? Uh, He gives us what we need. That's a hard thing to to contemplate, right? Like, Like, if you were to slow down and look at your life, what are the answers that you wish God would give you, but he said, not right now? What are the things going on in our society that you look at and you say, what on earth is going on? And in some ways, we might be able to understand it. But in other ways, God might not give us that answer. And so one of the things that we have to do is we have to exercise faith. Well, is God's goodness and his character big enough to overcome the questions that I have? Do I understand his person well enough to be okay with him not giving me all of the answers? Is is who he is enough? Or do I have to have special knowledge in order to be content? I think another point worth noting is that the angel, he he embodies the characteristics of Jesus. 
and so as Jesus' messenger, he manifests Jesus' nature. That's a really interesting thing to consider. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have become a partaker of the divine nature. You're not, you're not who you once were. God didn't improve your character. He gave you Jesus' character. He doesn't like shine you up. He makes you new. And so you're not who you once were. So as And one of the things that we recognize as followers of Jesus is we're to be his ambassadors. And so if I'm going to be a good ambassador, if I'm going to speak for Jesus, then I actually need his nature manifested in me. My life has to match Jesus's in order for my message to have weight and authority. But it's neither my life nor my message. It's both his. And so we recognize that in order for us to be good ambassadors for Christ, it's not about our self-effort. It's about allowing God to transform us from the inside out. We don't muster up the strength to be like Jesus. He gives us the gift of his nature. His spirit indwells us, and then we live like Jesus. But the other part of this is if your life does not look like Jesus, we really don't have any business proclaiming the gospel. If... If I'm going to wander around proclaiming that Jesus has taken me out of darkness and into life, but my life still looks like darkness, that's a message that has no weight. And because it's not matching reality. It may well be true. He's pulled you out of darkness and into light. But if, if reality of your lifestyle doesn't match the truth that's happening, people aren't going to listen to the message when you proclaim it. Now, I also want you to know that doesn't mean that we have to be perfect. God isn't calling us to be perfect. He's calling us to be holy. But the holiness that, that we would exhibit is something, again, that he does through us. And then what do you do if I'm not? What, what do I do if, if there's par- parts of my life that don't match what Jesus calls me to be? Well, now I have to repent, and I move away from that and towards Christ. And so even in my failures, Jesus gets the glory. But we need to strive and long for God's nature to be evident in us as we trust his Holy Spirit. And there's a balance to be said there. We're striving and resting. We're longing to be like Jesus, but recognizing that I can't do it, and so I need him to carry me. But if my life doesn't match the message, the message has no weight. And so, again, here's this angel. He's big. He's powerful. He's causing John to slow down and to contemplate. He has a scroll that is opened. Now, what's the scroll about? What's going on here? Verse 5, Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there will no longer be delay. But in the days, but in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed, as he announced to his servants the prophets. A couple of things to recognize there. One, the angel is promising that he's going to do what God said he would do. He's swearing by the one who created everything in the heavens, on the earth, and in the sea. If you ever wondered where we came from, the Bible has an answer. Uh, God created. God cares about his creation. God is active in his creation. He has been speaking through prophets and and giving messages to people to share. And he's been active in the course of human history, seeing out a plan of redemption so that we could come to life and have life in him. Uh, These aren't random circumstances. Uh, What we see around us isn't just random chance, but instead there's a creator who made it and who cares. That's important. If you have the wrong view of the creator, you, you, you... you won't, we won't want to turn to him. 
says there will no longer be delay. The seventh trumpet is going to be blown and the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants the prophets. Another thing that's interesting about the book of Revelation is you read this and you go, well, this sounds like new stuff. It's actually old. Everything in the book of Revelation has its roots in something that's old. It has its roots either in messages to the prophets in the Old Testament or the eternal God, right? These, this is, it's, in some ways, it's new information, but it's new information about things that are old. And so this mighty angel, he would definitely get your attention. He announces that the time for final judgment will no longer be delayed. Um, one of the misunderstandings that comes from this verse is that time will cease to end. That comes from the way that the King James Version is translated. Um, but you have to understand that God made time, space, and matter. He's outside of time, space, and matter, but he acts inside it as well. He's big, right? Like, and, and time, space, and matter will not cease to exist in the new heavens and the new earth. But instead, these things will continue to be. And so God's creation continues on. It doesn't end. But this mystery word, um, it says that the mystery of God is going to be explained. The book of Revelation, the, the mystery that's being explained, primarily revolves around God's final judgment of evil and the kingdom implications of the second coming of the Messiah. Um, and so again, this word mystery in the Greek, it's mysterion. It refers to a secret doctrine or a truth that is beyond human comprehension. Things that God has given us some of, but maybe not all of, or things that even if he gave us all of it, we would, we would not be able to understand it. Okay, That's the idea behind mystery within the New Testament. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. Um, follow along with me on your handout. There's, there's 14 mysteries that those 27 references talk about. The first one is the mystery of the kingdom. Uh, that when Jesus came the first time, he came to offer the kingdom to the Jewish nation, but it was rejected. That was something mysterious to them. The mystery of Israel's hardening in order to welcome the Gentiles, that was something that the Jews did not see coming in the way that it happened. The mystery of the Messiah's first coming, that he came as a servant, that he came as a, a child, he came as, a, as God in human flesh. The mystery of the Messiah's crucifixion. They did not see the Messiah dying on a cross. That was, that was far beyond what they, they thought was coming, and so it was a, mis a mystery to them. Or how about the mystery of our sin being an infinite debt, and it took an infinite payment in order to wipe it out? The mystery of the gospel entrusted to and proclaimed by the church. God has entrusted to us, the church, the good news of peace with God through what Jesus Christ has done. Now, in some ways that's clear, and in other ways it's mysterious. To me it's mysterious because he could be far more efficient if he didn't use me. Like, there's better ways for him to do this. The mystery of the believer's new body. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that our what our resurrection bodies will be like. The mystery of God's will that has now been revealed to us in Christ. What does God want from us that's been revealed to us in Christ? The mystery of Jesus' love for the church played out in a husband's love for his bride. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 5. The mystery of lawlessness and God's work restraining evil. 2 Thessalonians tells us that God is restraining evil. We don't know exactly how or how much, but he's doing it. He's holding people back from the worst that could happen on earth. The mystery of the faith and having a God who is beyond human comprehension. 
the mystery of godliness and having proper reverence for, for God through Jesus. If you want to live a godly life, if you want to be upright and holy and, and all that God is calling us to be, there's this mystery of how do we do it, and it's sort of revealed that it, proper reverence for Jesus is very important. The mystery of the seven stars and the Holy Spirit's ministry to the church, that's listed in Revelation chapter 1. The mystery of Jesus' second coming and rule on earth that's proclaimed by the Old Testament prophets. That's what we're seeing in Revelation chapter 10. And the mystery of Babylon the Great and a fallen world system will be described in Revelation chapter 17. I thought about adding this to the handout, but there's one more mystery, and uh, it's the mystery of women. Um, And the the book reference on that is the book of confusion, and it's uh, chapter 24, verse 7. Uh, Thought about putting that on there, but I didn't. Um, but the mysteries of scriptures, they're, they're intended for us to ruminate on them as we trust the character of God. Our tendency is to try to solve them rather than depend on God as he fulfills them in his perfect timing. Um, we have a tendency to try and solve these. And that's a dangerous and divisive inclination that shifts the focus off of Jesus and onto matters that God has decided to keep secret from us. And so this is what happens within different schools of theology. You get something like God's sovereignty and man's free will. God's told us that both exist, but he's also a God that is beyond our comprehension. And exactly how he plays this out, it's not super clear. But one school of theology says, well, I've correlated these verses and come together with this conclusion, and I'm right. And the other group of theologians comes together and they say, well, I correlated all these verses, and I've also added this philosophy and this other thing, and I came to a different conclusion, and you're wrong and I'm right. And no Nobody's talking about Jesus. And so when we look at the scriptures, unity comes from concentrating on Jesus. Jesus tells that in John chapter 17. If we want to be united, he is our focus. If the church is going to live out its purpose and proclaim the gospel and see people come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ, it's not about who, which theologian is right and which theologian is wrong. It's about Jesus. And so our eyes are fixed on him. Dissension and quarreling, however, those are manifestations of prideful human flesh. When Paul lists the deeds of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, he lists both those things. You have quarreling and dissension, groups of people that are fighting with one another about things that they don't even understand, that are beyond human comprehension. They're fighting about those things, and then then churches are breaking up, and people are going different directions, and nobody's talking about Jesus. The gospel isn't reaching the lost. Spiritual transformation isn't actually happening. It's just a group of people fighting with each other. That's not what we're to be known for. The other thing about God's revelations, particularly here in the book of Revelation, is they're made in pictures rather than concrete statements. And so one of the things that we have to do when we come to the book of Revelation and Scripture in general is we have to humble ourselves before God, be at peace with our limitations, and trust His goodness, the goodness of His character, as we mull over or ponder these different visions. They're not intended for us to be able to perfectly understand. Uh, They're intended definitely to let us understand that God is going to do something in the end where he will judge sin, death, and evil, and he'll get rid of them. That's very clear. It's very clear that God takes sin and death and evil. Uh, He takes them very seriously, and he's not going to leave them unpunished, but he's going to do something about it. But then the other side of it is if God is going to deal with sin, death, and evil, and without Christ, I'm, I'm just 
permeated with all three, how do I get right with God? And so the proclamation of the gospel becomes very important because if, if condemnation is coming for those who aren't in Jesus, if sin, death, and evil typifies me before Christ and that's going to be judged, then I need a rescuer. I need help. Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ has done that. He's gone to the cross to take away all the consequences of sin and to make me a new creation and give me new life and raise me up for the purpose of proclaiming that to other people. So I want my life to be holy. I want my uh, my manner of, of speech and thought and what I, what I do with, with uh, my actions. I want those things to be uh, rooted in what who Jesus is, not in, not in me. I want those things to be rooted in who Jesus is, and so I need the Holy Spirit to empower me. And as the Holy Spirit empowers me, I'm going to live a different life. And as I live a different life, now I have credibility and authority to speak on Jesus' behalf so that people could come into relationship with Him. And that's what the church is all about. And so Revelation reminds us over and over again, church, do what you're supposed to do, but how hope because Jesus is coming back and he is going to deal with these things. Now, as we go through this and you hear what I'm saying to you, uh, there's also, there's a sweetness to Jesus' second coming, but there's a bitterness to it as well. And so that's what this small scroll is about in verse 8. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth when I ate it. My stomach became bitter. Then they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, and kings. And so the angel, he orders John to take the truth of God's judgment of evil and Jesus' second coming and consume it. John eats the scroll. And if that sounds weird to you, it kind of is. But within the scriptures, it's not. Jeremiah eats a scroll in uh, chapter 15 of Jeremiah. And Ezekiel does the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 3. Um, and what happens to John is he, is he experiences exactly what the angel said would happen. It's sweet to taste and bitter to digest. And so we look at this and we say the sweetness of Jesus' return is something that you and I in Christ, it will, be, it will be sweet. It will be wonderful when we are reunited with Jesus face to face. Right now, we live in mysteries. Uh, when, when we enter the new kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth that God promises to us, every second is going to be like a revelation of who God is. It's going to be just wonderful all the time, us understanding who God is. No sin, no death, no evil, only righteousness, only goodness, and constant new experiences with God and each other. going to be unbelievable, incredibly sweet. For those who are not in Christ, it is going to be very, very bitter. Um, because what's going to happen is at that point in time, Jesus takes uh, the Satan and all of, it, all of his followers and he takes them and he casts them into the lake of fire. So instead of entering the new heavens and the new earth and all that is good, they enter into a place where God's restraint of evil is completely removed and hell is the idea of individuals doing the worst to each other all the time because they can find no fulfillment. Their only form of fulfillment is to take from each other. And so that's, that's hell. And so it'll be a time of bitterness. The other part of this is, I don't know about you, but there are people that I love and care about that are not right with God. And so while my reunion with Him may be sweet, 
will also be a sense of bitterness. That their reunion with God is not, it's not sweet. All the more motivation to live a life that mirrors Christ as he empowers us. All the more motivation to share the gospel. The other thing you have to understand is God will experience the same thing. It will be sweet for him. When Christ returns and comes to his, his, his bride and he brings his church directly into his, his, his presence without, any, without anything in the way, it will be a time that is sweet. The scriptures talk about it in different ways, that it's like a feast, there's a banquet, there's, it's a party. It's going to be wonderful for God. But the other side of it is he's going to have children that he loves, that he cares about, that he gave his life for, <clears throat> that reject him. Can you imagine the bitterness of having a child that you sacrifice for over and over and over again? You love them, you give, you give to them, you do everything that you can in order for this child to have life, to, to, to bless them. And they say, you're not my father. You're not my mother. You, you, you don't get to, you're not important to me. So there's a sweetness for God when he returns of bringing his church and those who trust him into his presence. There's a bitterness. And so you look at that question in Ezekiel chapter 18, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Of course he doesn't. Instead, he takes pleasure when we turn from our ways and trust him and live. That's, his, that's the longing of God's heart, is that we would, we would have life in his son that we would receive forgiveness in Jesus' death on the cross, that our old self would be put to death with him, and that we would be raised as new creations as Jesus rose from the dead. That's God's heart for us. And yet he does not manipulate our will. Our choice. I think another thing to recognize about this is that this is God's heart towards all all people, all of humanity. He tells John that he's going to prophesy to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And so it doesn't matter your ethnicity, your nationality, the language that you speak, or your position within society. God's desire is the same. That we would stop trusting ourselves. That we would start trusting him. That we would be transformed, live to bless others as Christ lived, and proclaim the gospel. That's what he longs for us, for each and every one of us to be a part of that. And so as, as you go through God's word, I wonder what, I wonder what your response is. Uh, is this message sweet like honey to you, or does it become bitter at the pronunciation of our sinfulness? Uh, the gospel's confrontational. You have to understand this. The gospel is confrontational because it tells you, tells me, apart from Christ, I am sinful, broken, and without hope. I am helpless, hopeless, and can do nothing to fix my situation. Really, you're telling me that I am so small, God, that I could do nothing to right the wrongs that I've done. That's right. I'm telling you that you're so small that you could do nothing to right the wrongs that you've done. 
really, because I think I could do more good works than my bad works. I think I could live the rest of my life being a blessing to other people, and I, and I promise to never take advantage of anyone, and I promise to use my money for others, and I promise to, and you can come up with a whole list of rules and maybe even keep some of them, but at the end, you're still at odds with God. And so do you become bitter when you hear the gospel? I don't need a savior. I'm just fine. It might seem silly, but people do it all the time. I'm just fine. Or when you hear the message of a God who made you and loves you and knows all the wrong that you've done, and like a father that you've always dreamed, you may have had the best earthly father ever, but even more, here comes the heavenly father and he says, I forgive you. I love you. I want you. We got a problem. It's called sin. My son Jesus went to the cross to wipe it out. If you trust him, I'll make you new. If you trust him, I'll pull you out of darkness and into light. If you trust him, all of the wrong is done away with. Your rebellion is crushed and your broken nature is new. I'm not going to shine you up. I'm not going to make you a better version of you. I'm going to make you like my son Jesus. Does that sound pretty sweet? Does this resonate with you? And so I wonder what God is calling you to stop and consider. Maybe it's your eternal destiny. Where do you stand with God? Uh, Can God take delight in you as you trust in him and his son Jesus? Uh, You know, if if you were to leave this earth today, uh, your your body dies, but your spirit lives on, and you're face-to-face with God, would it be a moment of delight because you've trusted his son Jesus, or would it be a moment of bitterness as you continue to reject him? Would it be a moment of excitement or a moment of grief for both you and God? Maybe you've, you've, you've said, I trust Jesus. His death on the cross is the payment for my sin and his resurrection from the dead truly happened and it gives me new life. I, I am rooted in the scriptures and God's spirit lives within me and I know these things and I trust him. Maybe it's a question about our walk. You know, do you seek him in order to figure him out? the reason I'm in relationship with God is I got to get him figured out. The joke about the mystery of women. You know, like I can't even figure myself out most of the time. It's very unlikely that I know everything that's going on in my wife, even if I tried my hardest. And yet we might have the idea that we could figure God out. Like I don't even really know myself. The person that I'm closest to, sometimes I, I, I'm, I'm just at a loss on, on, on how to love her, on how to care for her, because I, I, I'm limited. And yet I think I might be able to figure out God. The other side of it is what kind of relationship with that? If I said, Becky, my goal in our relationship is to figure you out. I just want to figure you out. And once I've got you figured out, I can make sure that we never have any conflict. Is that what it's about? Or is it, I love you? And it doesn't matter if I understand, I love you. 
It doesn't matter if I get it. I love you. And nothing would ever take that away. Nothing, no, no misunderstanding could ever cause me to stop loving you. And you have to understand that, that that's the relationship that we long to have. That's the relationship that God already has with us, even though he understands us. And it's the relationship he wants us to have with him. It doesn't matter if we understand everything. Is he trustworthy? It doesn't matter if we trust everything. Is his love infinite? It doesn't matter if we understand everything about him. Is he worthy? And that's what the book of Revelation reminds us of over and over again. His goodness, his justice, his love, his infinite worth. I have no box I could put that in. It's too big. He's too big. So do you go to him to figure, figure him out? Maybe you go to him for what you can get from him. You know, the reason I'm in relationship with God is because of what he has to offer. I've shared with you before, I had a friend in middle school who, from a wealthy family, and I wasn't really excited about him, but I really loved going over to his house because he had all the cool stuff, and they had a house at the lake with jet skis. And so, like, I could take or leave him, but I really liked his stuff. <laughs> and sometimes we approach God that way. Now, it's a balancing act, too, because God has things that there's nowhere else to go to get it. Like, there's nowhere else to go for truth. There's nowhere else to go for life. There's nowhere else to go. I mean, like, you've got to go to Jesus. There's no, there's no second spot. And so it's a balancing act. But do I want him or just what he can give? Can you be content in knowing him and allowing him to lead you and trust in his timing as he sees fit? Uh, maybe you're going through something right now and there's sickness in your family or sickness in your own life or maybe you just, uh, finances aren't what you want them to be or your job, you know, when you started it was great but 20 years down the road you're just, you're just pulling, wishing it would end. You know, like maybe, I don't know what you're going through. Maybe your marriage is a wreck. Maybe you have addiction that needs to be dealt with. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're struggling mightily as a parent and you keep having outbursts of anger with your children. I don't know what you're going through. But I can tell you if you get your eyes on Jesus, he'll be enough. Maybe the other thing to consider is it's how you approach the Bible. You know, is Scripture a major part of your life? Or the 11 verses we did this morning, the only 11 you got this week? I mean, if you're only going to get 11, keep showing up on Sunday. But I'd encourage you to do more. Like we should build habits into our lives where we're spending time in God's Word on a daily basis. Uh, you know, I, I want to know you, God, and, and I can't figure you out through the Scriptures. But there are things that you've told me to be true about you within the Scriptures. And so I want, I want to know you. So I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to read your book. Does, does Scripture shape how you think, or does your thinking supersede it? So you're like, I go to the Scripture every day with my ideas of what God should say in it. And so when I read a passage, my ideas are on top of it, and I'm going to make God's Word read how I want it to read. And the passages that don't mesh with culture, well, I just leave those ones out. The passages that make me uncomfortable, I'm just staying away from those. You know, I only am going to go to the places that are honey to me. The bitter passages I avoid.
If we're intended to be shaped by Scripture, that won't work. And then the other question is, when was the last time that you slowly digested a passage? Like, read John chapter 13. And Jesus, they're having a meal, and he, he takes off his outer garments, and he kneels down, and he takes the position of a slave, and he wipes dung off of his disciples' feet. Dirt, everything that was on the road, he wipes it off. Now, Jesus is eternal. He's always been. Somehow, he joined humanity. That's hard to figure out. Like, I can explain it to you as theologians do, but I still don't know that I understand it. He did it. And so here's the God-man kneeling in the position of a slave, wiping filth off of his followers. Like, maybe that's the only passage you should, we should read this week. Just read John 13 every morning. And then go for a walk and say, God, what? What is going on in this? What do you want to teach me in this? What do you want to show me? Just let that passage ruminate in your mind. And then the point isn't for it to just change our thinking, but then it would change our heart, and then we would live differently. When was the last time you did that with a passage? I want to tell you, being together as a church family is wonderful. I'm so glad you're here. We get to worship together. We get to talk to each other. We build relationships with each other. Uh, you know, we spend time in God's word together. Um, but your number one relationship is Jesus. And if you'll make Jesus your number one relationship, day in, day out, you're going to live in a way that you, you, you'll be hard to even fathom looking back over the course of your life how different he's, how much he's changed you. So maybe today is your day of salvation. Maybe today is the day you go, I don't know why I've been rejecting this message, but I'm going to trust. Then I want you to move forward, join together with this family, spend time in God's word, spend time with each other, be a part of more than just Sunday morning, but a Bible study, a small group, a one-on-one -on -one relationship, and Dig into this relationship with God and each other. Let me pray with you. Our Father, we, uh, we're so blessed to get to call you that. Maybe that's enough, God. Maybe we just ruminate on that. We are so blessed to call you Father. That you, you love us. You sacrifice for us. The cost of us being your children was the life of your son Jesus. His death on the cross wiped away our sin. His resurrection from the dead made us new creations. Holy ones set apart for an intended purpose, and that purpose would be to make you known. That's something else. 
Uh, Father, we thank you that you are going to deal with sin, death, and evil once and for all. You've, you've eliminated it in my life as, I, as your son Jesus has taken it away and made me new. But you're going to eliminate it from this earth. And that's a sweet thing that we look forward to. Jesus' second coming, his return as the king and Messiah over all of the universe. And uh, it's a sweet thing we look forward to, God. But at the same time, we recognize that for you and for us and for those that are against you, it, it's a bitter moment as well. And so, God, give us a deep desire and passion to make you known with our thoughts and our words and our actions, that our lives would be manifestations of your spirit moving inside of us, Um, and that we would proclaim without fear and with boldness this message of peace, the gospel of peace in Jesus Christ. We look forward to your return, and yet at the same time recognize the implications of it for the lost. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.